This is Why You Should Vote, your guide to becoming an informed American voter. I'm Eli. And I'm Sonia. This is episode 7 of 9, and today we'll be talking about all the elections! So Sonia, why is knowing about all the elections important to becoming an informed voter? Well, this one's a little bit more obvious than a lot of our previous ones, but this episode is designed to introduce you to every single type of election you are likely to encounter in the United States. It'll help you get a good idea of who you're voting for, where they work, and how each election is conducted. It's also useful to know exactly how the election process works at different levels of government, because you may need to vote more than once for some elections, and not for others, for example in the event of a primary. This episode will also introduce you to ballot initiatives and briefly explain things like caucuses and how the Electoral College works. That one's a doozy. So let's start off with the national elections, and of course, we'll start with the president. In order to talk about national elections, we have to talk about primaries, caucuses, and conventions. If your state has a primary, it's basically a mini-election to find out who your district will support as the nominee. In a primary, you will only be able to vote for members of your party, so you will receive either a Democratic or Republican ballot, depending on your party registration or what you request when you go vote. This is because you're voting for the candidate your party will put forth in the general election. The goal of a primary election is basically to narrow the field of possible candidates. If your state has the caucus model, you go to a place for your district and discuss with everyone else in your party from that district until you all basically agree on who you'll support as the nominee. This has the same purpose as a primary election, but only includes people who are able to and choose to go to the caucus for that district. Although the Democrats did try an online caucus in each state that does caucuses this year and it went all right. There's a fair amount of debate as to which system is better, which we're not going to go into right now, but which you can look up if you're interested. So the convention for each party brings together delegates from all the districts to convey their choices from their primaries and caucuses and determine nationally who the nominee should be. And in the case of the Democratic convention, there are also unpledged delegates or so-called superdelegates who are party officials like current Democratic members of Congress that don't represent a specific district but cast their vote based on their own opinions. Because why not? That's how that party wants to do things. Sonia, do you want to dive us into the Electoral College? Sure, I'll take a stab at it. So, the Electoral College, you've probably heard about this. Here's basically how it works. Your vote for president actually is a vote that tells a member of the Electoral College how to vote. Your state has electors equal to the number of senators plus the number of representatives, unless you're Washington, D.C., in which case you get three for reasons. Those reasons are the 23rd Amendment. In almost every state, the party that wins the popular vote in their state gets to pick all of the electors for that state. Many states have the ability to fine or punish electors that do not vote for who they're supposed to. Once you've cast your vote for an elector, the electors get together and vote for the president and the vice president, and the votes from all the electoral college members are counted to determine who wins the presidency. If there is no majority, then the House votes on the president and the Senate votes on the vice president over and over until someone wins. This is a crazy system. Why do we do this? Because the president is actually picked by the states, not the people. In fact, originally, the state legislature picked the electors. You didn't even cast a vote for them. Most things in the Constitution are about giving the states representation, not the people. If you read through the Constitution, you will see, quote-unquote, the people mentioned in the context of electing senators and representatives in the Tenth Amendment and in the preamble. That's it. 
This is entirely at odds with how we perceive the election and the role of the president now. There's a huge amount of discourse about whether or not the Electoral College is a good idea, whether it was a good idea once upon a time but isn't anymore, and whether it should be abolished. And we're not going to get into that discourse here because that's a different podcast, but you can look it all up. We will say, however, that whatever you think of the Electoral College, it's the system we currently have and the system we have to work with, and it would take a constitutional amendment to change it. Constitutional amendments are really difficult to pass, like super difficult. Look up the Equal Rights Amendment if you want to find out how difficult. So it's a good idea to become familiar with the Electoral College, even if you think it should be abolished. However, there is a little bit of a workaround brewing called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. This is a promise for states to bind their electors to vote for the winner of the national popular vote instead of the state popular vote. And it's a way of making sure that the president who is elected is always the one who won the popular vote without requiring a constitutional amendment to change the system. Many states have passed it, but it doesn't take effect until 270 electoral votes worth of states have passed it. 270 is how many you need to get a majority in the electoral college. We don't have it right now, which is how our current president got into office despite losing the popular vote in a pretty definitive way. Eli, shouldn't we be voting for the vice president? <laughs> Funny story about that. Uh, we used to, and it was a bad idea, and so we passed the 12th Amendment, and now we don't do that. So short answer, no, we don't. Well, that answers that. Also on the national level, senators go up for election once every six years, but on different cycles, so only a third are up for grabs in any given election. However, representatives get re-elected every two years, all of them, up for grabs every two years. This means it's pretty easy to ditch your representative quickly if you decide they're not working for you. Yet another way in which the House is more accountable to their constituents than the Senate. Oh, and if you're in Puerto Rico, Guam, and so on, you don't get any representation on the national level except a non-voting resident commissioner in the House. You don't even get to vote for president. Sucks to be part of the empire. We're sorry. All right, let's move on to state elections, starting with the governor. You probably have a similar primary system for your state elections as you have for the federal elections, because voting for governor is pretty similar to voting for president. It's just slightly more local and therefore probably actually more relevant to you. Also, some states do vote for a lieutenant governor, um, unlike the vice president. Some states don't have a lieutenant governor. Some states, they're picked by the state senate. Some states, it's a separate election rather than a joint ticket. Um, and so in this way, the lieutenant governor, if you have one, may be a way to put a check on your governor. If you have separate elections or if they're picked by the state senate, you might potentially have a governor and a lieutenant governor of different parties. You'll also be voting for your state representatives, whether you have one house or two. Looking at you, Nebraska. Your state election cycle may vary from the national cycle, so be sure to look up who in your state is up for re-election in any given year. Other state officials who get elected, depending on the state, are the Secretary of the State, or of the Commonwealth, if you're nasty, the Attorney General, Treasurer, Comptroller, Auditor, and a bunch of others. You also might see some judges on your ballot, um, depending on your state. And this is for state-level judges only, no federal circuit or appeals judges. There's a lot of discourse about whether voting for judges is a good idea or not. We're not going to get into that in this podcast, but it is pretty interesting if you're a nerd like we are. So we'll put some resources in the show notes for you, and you can look it up yourself. Eli and I disagree on whether or not judges should be elected, but we'll let you guess which one of us thinks they should and which one thinks they shouldn't. Let's talk about local elections and ballot initiatives. 
When you're voting in local elections, you're voting for your county government, your city government, your township government, your water and zoning and school boards, and lots of other things. It's really going to depend on where you live as to what exactly is going to come up in each election. You may also have a ballot initiative or a referendum or proposition. These can be local or statewide. Um, Similarly, they can be binding or advisory. Binding initiatives become law if they passed. Advisory ones urge the legislature to pass a particular law. Some states allow ballot initiatives to be put on the ballot by citizens. Others require them to come from the legislature. There are 50 states, so there are 50 sets of rules on this. Ballot initiatives are maybe the most complicated part of the ballot. They're often written confusingly, so make sure you know exactly what you're voting for. The wording is very specific, and there's no way to say you only partially agree with an initiative. Sometimes I have had to vote no on an initiative that I otherwise agreed with because the wording was specific and I only partially agreed with it. They can include a negative so that a no vote means that you do the thing and a yes vote means not to. And you may actually be only seeing a shortened version of the initiative on the ballot in front of you. Many ballot initiatives will have endorsements from interested parties, like unions, just like elected officials get. So you can look those up beforehand to get an idea of how you want to vote. Interested groups might also have explanations of what the initiative would do. Examples of recent ballot initiatives in Illinois include legalizing marijuana, advising the state legislature to raise the minimum wage, and amending the state constitution to prohibit laws that disproportionately affect the right to vote based on a number of protected classes. And on the ballot for Massachusetts this year is ranked choice voting, which I'm really excited about. (laughs) And also a right to repair a law. Okay, it's homework time. At the end of every episode, we like to give you a way to keep thinking about what we discussed today, or even put it into action. Today, our suggestion is check your local election cycles and see who in your state government is up for election or re-election this year. Check to see if there are any ballot initiatives happening in your state, and then look them up to figure out what you think about them and see who's running for what positions in your state, then do a little research on them to see who you might want to vote for. And with all that, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be all about picking your candidate. Why You Should Vote is recorded in Chicago, Illinois, and Littleton, Massachusetts. I do audio editing, and Sonia writes the show notes, which you can find at whyyoushouldvote.com. If you like the show, the best thing you can do is share it with a friend, especially someone who needs to hear it. And of course, go go vote. vote!